I kind of mentioned this, but uh, in between both of these sessions, uh, we're going to have one of you come up, and I'm just going to ask a few questions of them. So, uh, Crystal, could you join me up here for a second? Maybe for the, for the Zoom folks, I'll maybe ask a question, and then we can switch places so you can be in front of the computer. But I just wanted to ask Crystal a few questions of just things... Crystal is someone that I have had many conversations about and thinking through some of the things that we've been thinking and talking about, and she thinks very clearly about some of these things. So I wanted to personally benefit from hearing from her, and I think you all might as well. So Crystal, I just wanted to first ask, uh, what have been some benefits, um, some kingdom-minded gifts that you are using your singleness as a gift toward? Um, so many. Um, I'm very, I'm, I'm probably one of the, like, people that are more contented in my singleness, um, especially as Christ. Then the Zoom people can't see or hear her, but. Yeah, I should point it down. Sorry, I'll try, I'll, I don't know. Sorry, I'm very short. Um, so I've had opportunities to serve in ways that I know I wouldn't be able to other um, if I were married. Um, it has allowed me to serve the church, um, serve families in just just different ways. And um, so that's been a really big um, blessing for me. It's allowed me to pursue um, physical therapy and with children uh, so I can help benefit a lot more families. And it's also, also allowed me to... Um, pursue missions and something that I've been having on my heart for many, many years. So I'm really thankful to be single and have um, just been overjoyed to be able to pursue what the Lord has put on my heart. And yet, sit there. Zoom people, you can maybe just hear me. And yet, there have been undoubtedly some difficulties, uh, some struggles, some pains of being single. And so what have some of those been? And how have you processed through those? So I would say a big component would be um, some loneliness. Um, when you think of people that meet together in the midst of like holidays or like fun family gatherings and things that you don't necessarily have your own family to celebrate, that can kind of be a little bit difficult. Um, even thinking through the pandemic, I had this very long season of feeling lonely and knowing that I didn't have anybody directly in relationship with me. Um, that caused a little bit of loneliness. Um, and then when I process and think about the fact that I may ne never have children, that is really something that really weighs heavily on my heart. Um, if you know me at all, you know I love children so much, and um, so I look for opportunities to serve people with children. But just thinking about the fact that Nathan made me cry <laughs> earlier when he said about reading stories to your own children or discipling your own children, that is something that is something that I just process and think through and pray through and um, just rejoice in the Lord that he has given me so many more opportunities to be among children than I would have otherwise. Yeah. Um, how has the wider church and specifically how have other married folks encouraged you or supported you or um, included you in ways that have been helpful for you? Um, so that has been really a blessing. I've had so many people here at Christ Church who just ask me over. Um, don't treat me as 
um, somebody that's missing something or ask me why I'm single or those kinds of things. Um, I think a big component of that is just come alongside of our family. Um, doesn't have to be anything crazy. You don't have to make dinner for me, but wash or help us with our laundry <laughs> or um, come and just babysit our children. Those kinds of things I think have been really helpful and encouraging my heart because I feel loved and seen and heard. Um, and so I think, well, that's like probably the next question. Well, last question then. <laughs> what do you wish that married folks in our church would either know, understand, or do better in this? Um, so kind of coming alongside that, um, just having us in your homes. Um, we don't, I, well, I don't speak for everybody, by the way, in my struggles. This is not every single woman's struggles with singleness. But um, instead of thinking of, oh, I need to set aside time apart from our family to meet at a coffee shop, have us in your home. Like, we would love to, at least for me, um, would love to just be amongst family because that's something that I lack. Um, so do, like, small things like that in, in, is really encouraging in my perspective. Great. Thank you, Crystal. Thank you. Uh, we will think through some of the things that she was just talking about more in our third session together. But for now... The, session, the second session that we want to think through is what is sexuality? What is intimacy? Um, so let's start talking about sex, everybody. Uh, sexuality and singleness. Uh, before we get going, can I just say that we probably need an entire seminar. We need three hours or three months uh, to get to what we're about to get into. Uh, the story of our sexuality that both the world and even the church has shaped us in means that our sexuality has unfortunately, be- unfortunately become so deeply ingrained with who we are as humans. So there's like Darwinian models that explain your sexuality as inherently and innately an evolutionary impulse to ensure the propagation of the species. Pleasure evolved with sex to make sure that we keep having sex, to make sure that we keep having Uh, children that we keep procreating. So sex is merely nothing more than just neurons and chemicals. It's important, certainly. Uh, In fact, uh, it's part of who you are as a human, Uh, but it's not really anything primarily different than any other kind of human interaction. It's not like upping the level of intimacy or whatever else than, than like talking with another human is, just because there are just different neurons and chemical, chemicals that are happening in your body. So this is like a Darwinian model. Uh, psychological models like that of uh, Sigmund Freud or Alfred Kinsey explain that nearly every aspect of your life can be explained or interpreted by understanding your sexual desire and or your understanding your corresponding repression of or lack of sexual expression. So humans can only really understand themselves if we live full or live full realized lives if we are like breaking the sexual norms and then just experiment and engage in and enjoy the things that bring us the most sexual pleasure, the most happiness. So this dominant narrative today is why it is seemingly an act of violence to even suggest any form of sexual limit or restraint. But even models of sexuality within the church can encourage teens, college students, 
and beyond to just completely turn off all sexual desire until marriage. And if you can pursue this kind of sexual uh, purity, avoiding all forms of immorality, then God will reward that. Not only with a spouse, if you can stay pure and avoid immorality, then God will reward that with a spouse, but he will also reward that with the most mind-blowing sexual life that you could have ever have dreamed for. It's, a, again, another sort of sexual prosperity gospel, that obedience produces sexual blessing and the existence of current sexual struggle must indicate either disobedience or a lack of faith. Now, thankfully, uh, my home church that I grew up in, even in the, like, the heyday of this so-called purity culture that was at its peak in the 90s and early 2000s, uh, some remnants of it still are totally floating around today. Now, what I'm not saying is that I think some people have now labeled all purity culture as any culture or any teaching that says you should not have sex until you are married. That's not what I, we're about to get into that. But the kind of purity culture that says God will reward sexual faithfulness. So as Christians, we actually don't give much thought to why God has actually made us sexual beings in the first place. We don't really have a good story for that. The wider culture out there has a wonderful story. A wonderful story of sexuality, of meaning, of belonging, of identity. But as Ed Shaw says, the evangelical church's basic message to singles today of just say no just doesn't have any real credibility anymore. It embarrasses many of us to ask unmarried people to do that. It sounds positively unhealthy. It lacks any traction in today's world, simply producing incredulity from the majority that a human being would actually pursue celibacy or pursue what we might call sexual morality. And so, even though we need three hours, three months, three decades to talk through this, let's try to take the next 20 or 30 minutes or so and consider what the, what the Christian clinical psychologist Dr. Julie Slattery says that sexuality is not a problem to be solved, but it is a territory to reclaim. So why did God make us sexual beings in the first place? That is, why did God not make us asexual creatures? He could have. He could have, just like he makes many other microorganisms and cells uh, to reproduce themselves asexually, they just like split I suppose at age 18 or something, he could have created me for like my, the top half of me to like slide off of my hips and then now there's two of me. Uh, he could have done that. So why did he make us sexual beings? Until we understand this, we actually won't understand ourselves. The purpose of a sexual relationship is this, to serve as a living portrait of the life-changing spiritual union that believers have with God through Christ. The reason that God has made you a sexual being at all is to serve as a living portrait of the life-changing spiritual union that you as a believer have with God through Christ. How's this? It has a lot of components. But remember what I said about a hammer blow. Like if, I had a, if this was a sheet of copper and I hit the sheet of copper with the hammer. The impression that is left is not the hammer, but it looks very much like the hammer that left the impression. Just like a shadow on the ground from my hand or a tree or a building is not my hand or a tree or a building, even though it looks very, very much like my hand or a tree or a building. This is what the Bible calls, calls types. Think about the Passover lamb 
in how God delivered Israel from Egypt. The Israelites, the Hebrew slaves, were to slaughter a lamb, smear its blood over their doorpost, and if they had faith that uh, the blood of the lamb would cover them and that death would pass over and that through the shed blood of the lamb, God would deliver his people from slavery into a land of blessing and dwelling with him. I mean, this is like one of the clearest pictures that we have of the coming cross of Christ. But here's the thing. The Passover lamb did not just happen to share some happy coincidences with the cross of Christ. It wasn't like, you know, like 30 or 40 years later, uh, after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, Paul is just sitting there and he's like thinking back to the Old Testament. He's like, I got it. Here's a great sermon illustration. Uh, You know what the cross of Christ is very much like? It's kind of like the Passover lamb in Egypt. No, that's not exact. That's not at all what God was doing. The Passover lamb is divinely intended from eternity past to point to and prepare for the coming cross of Christ. So in the same way, in Ephesians 5, Paul is talking about husbands and wives. He's talking about marriage. And after giving a command to the wives, he says, in the same way, husbands... In the same way as Christ has loved the church, he says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then he quotes from Genesis 2, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then, close quote, he comes back to it in this bit of commentary. He says, This mystery, that a man and woman should become one flesh, is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This mystery, this previously hidden knowledge that has now been exposed and made clear to us, is now profound. The hidden thing has been revealed. What is the hidden thing that is now revealed? By what logic does Paul ask husbands and wives to relate to one another as Christ and the church? The answer is in Ephesians 5.32. That human marriage refers to Christ and the church. In other words, marriage is a type. It is a hammer blow. It is a shadow of Christ's relationship to the church. This is what I'm saying. Don't miss this. That Jesus and the church come before Adam and Eve. Come before human marriage. Paul is not saying, what can I, how can I better explain Uh, Jesus and the church. Oh, it's kind of like marriage. No, he's saying, how can I better explain marriage? Oh, it's Jesus and the church. Jesus and the church comes before that. Jesus and the church is preparatory and it is divinely pointing toward uh, a marriage that is to come. So Augustine says, it is of Christ and the church that it is most truly said, the the two shall become one flesh. In Genesis 1 and 2, there are different but complementary beings throughout what Throughout Genesis 1 and 2, as God is creating what theologians sometimes call dyads, these complementary but different things that are happening and being created. Light, darkness, heaven, earth, land, sea, sky, water, and then two different but complementary beings of male and female. Biological difference and complementarity, which brings one flesh. And it is not to take us back to an age of sexual repression to say that there is a biological fit to how God has designed and created humans sexually through difference. Something profound happens through sex. The marriage union is not simply a legal union, not simply a social union, a 
financial union or even a union of families, but it is all of those things, but even more, it is a union of bodies, a sharing of physical life. After the marriage covenant is verbally agreed to at the wedding, it is ratified with what? With sex. Sex initiates and sustains the marriage covenant. I was once at a conference and I heard Sam Storms say something very provocative that I was like, "Uh, that sounds blasphemous, excuse me, Mr. Storms. Uh, But then the more I thought about it, I think he's exactly right. That he said that sex is very, very much like communion, very much like what we experience weekly at the Lord's table. Why does God give us communion? Why does God give us the table? It is a physical, it is a ongoing, continual, and visceral reminder of our covenantal union with Christ. It is both initiating and sustaining. And so, sex functions in nearly the exact same way. It is a visceral, physical reminder of the covenant that happened at the wedding day. It initiates and sustains. And so, this is why sex outside of marriage is so destructive. Not because these are included, but not primarily because of STDs or psychological damage or unwanted pregnancies or whatever else your youth pastor might have told you. These are all things that are true and real too. But the reason why sex outside of marriage is so destructive is because it is broken from its very purpose. It is like a fire outside of the fireplace. What should be comfort-providing, what should be a life-giving place of warmth now becomes a destructive place of insecurity and havoc. But remember, sex is a type. It is not a sermon illustration. Before continuing about sex and relationship, your sex and relationships, I want us to think about if sex is pointing to the gospel and refers to the gospel, I want to make sure that we're actually clear about the gospel. If all of this is supposed to help us better understand, I want to make sure that we're on the same page. Here's the gospel. Union with Christ. The gospel says that we are forgiven. That's why Jesus' death is so important. God is able to forgive sin because his wrath is, instead of being poured on us, is poured out on Jesus while he is on the cross. He receives the right, our right judgment and the wrath of God on our behalf. And forgiveness is really, really, really important. But forgiveness is not enough. That sounds weird. But forgiveness of sins is not enough. I think we often think of the gospel as like a second chance, a redo, uh, a, a new day to honor God and serve him perfectly or something. But the gospel is not that we just have our mistakes erased. The gospel is not that we uh, get a new day to try, and if we don't, then we have to go to confession again. The gospel is that our nature must be changed. The very source of our sinful actions must be transformed. Our spiritual death must be made alive. That's why we've often defined the gospel very limitedly. The gospel is much more than this, but the gospel as the good news that God saves sinners through the life death, and resurrection of Jesus. I think we can tend toward just focusing on the forgiveness of sins part and the death of Jesus part. But it's very important that we say that the good, the good news is the gospel, the gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Not just the death of Christ, but the life of Christ. Just as the husband and wife become one flesh physically, we share in Christ's flesh. His life is his righteousness becomes our righteousness. 
in a verse that, again, might sound blasphemous if it weren't in the Bible. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.4, we become sharers in his nature. The divine nature becomes ours through union with Christ. We are born again. We receive new and ongoing life, not just because we say a prayer or we get better or we get our past forgiven or we have more self-control with sexual desire and action. We are born again because the very life of Christ through the Holy Spirit is inside us. We become his bride. We are wed to him. There's a marriage supper. He is our bridegroom. Through a union that sex is meant to point us toward, we receive his life. And the effect of this, the knowledge of this higher reality, then helps us understand how, and, or how we should behave within the realm of our earthly reality. In other words, our sex lives and our sexual desires ought to be patterned after the way in which Christ and the church relate spiritually. The way that we behave sexually must conform to that which God has created sex to illustrate. That is, the life-changing nature of the gospel. Just as Christ reserves himself spiritually for his spouse, the church, so too we are called to reserve, reserve ourselves sexually for our husband or wife. Christ is united to the church alone. Thus, a man must be united to his wife alone. Christ does not divorce his bride. We must not divorce our spouse Sex with our spouse should be a means of cultivating deeper intimacy with one another. And sex with our spouse, while cultivating intimacy with pleasure as is a byproduct, like our union with Christ, though is ordered toward multiplication, go and make disciples. That's what Jesus, his last command was to his disciples. Sex ought to be ordered toward the multiplication of childbearing and of the discipleship of the family. Now, that's not to say that every sexual act must be... Uh, uh, ordered toward childbearing, but that the very nature of sex within marriage is oriented toward multiplication. Our bodies tell God's story. Sex is so sacred and so important, so vital to who we are as embodied human beings because, not because it makes me happy and gives me pleasure, but because it is the physical way that we understand the draw to and the celebration of covenant love. And yet, we're talking about all this in the context of singleness, which seems to indicate, if everything that I just said is true, that for those who do not marry, they will either, one, miss out on a huge part of what it means to be an embodied human being, or miss out on a huge part of Christian sanctification, the physical way that we understand the draw to and the celebration of covenant love. Is celibacy, is the intentional decision, either temporarily or long-term or lifelong, is celibacy, the decision to keep oneself from action and interaction sexually with others, is celibacy inhuman? Is it living less than than what God intends for you as a human. Again, coming from a married man, I understand the emotional wall that is perhaps even subconsciously built in front of whatever I'm about to say. But is celibacy, short-term or long-term, inhuman? No. To answer the question with a yes would be to suggest and to say that Jesus Christ, who lived the most fully realized, contented, 
and satisfied life in all of human history lived less than a human life. There's no doubt that God has hardwired sexual desire into human beings, and that's actually a good thing. Marriage is a relationship that requires and demands self-sacrifice, self-denial, mutual submission, and love. Why in the world would human beings voluntarily sign up for that? Sexual desire and the accompanying desire for intimacy is a strong pull towards marriage. And yet, the way of Jesus is actually about growing in self-denial, not self-fulfillment. Ed Shaw, same-sex attracted pastor, committed to a celibate life, which, by the way, his book, Same-Sex Attraction and and the Church, the, the subtitle is the better part, The Surprising Plausibility of the Celibate Life. I think so... Most of us just assume it's completely implausible. But this, this book is great. But Ed Shaw says, Western Christians have, by and large, stopped denying ourselves. We now talk more about our right to be ourselves. Our Christian lives are more about self-gratification. They are, listen to this, they are, they are a continuation of our previous life with a very thin Christian veneer. Just being nicer to a few more people. What he's saying is, when someone becomes a Christian... The way that we generally disciple people is to more or less keep the life that you had, just be nicer. This is not what Christian discipleship actually is. Even in thinking about marriage, I think that we can tend toward thinking, yes, self-denial, sexual self-denial is something that you have to slog through until you get married. But once you get married, all sexual self-denial goes out the window and you get whatever you want. Sexual health and marriage is often reduced to how often? Is it good? Is it satisfying? Rather than sexual health being what it was intended for. Is sexual health, is God using, even as married people, our longings to draw us into deeper intimacy with each other and with him? If so, then our sexual lives are healthy. All humans are living with and experiencing some level of sexual brokenness. Every single one of us. Which is why we need to focus less on avoiding sexual immorality and moving toward what Dr. Slattery calls sexual maturity. A sexual discipleship in which all of our desires come under the lordship of Christ Jesus as we follow him in self-denying joy. But this does not mean that single people do lead less than human lives, or lives wasting their sexuality. Uh, Our boy Sam, I'm just going to keep quoting him all the time. We're on a first name basis because I've read so many words of his and listened to so many words of his on the podcast. Uh, But Sam says, single Christians who abstain from sex outside the marriage bond bear witness to the faithful nature of God's love with the same authority as those who have sex inside the marriage bond. Those who abstain from sex from outside the marriage bond, bear witness to the faithful nature of God's love with the same authority as those who have sex inside the marriage bond. Or to follow up with the metaphor from earlier, Glenn Harrison puts it this way, whether we are married or single in this life, sexual desire is our inbuilt homing instinct for the divine, a kind of navigation aid showing us the way home. You could think of it as a form of body language. Our bodies talk to us about a greater reality of fulfillment and eternal blessing and urge us to go there. When you have, or feel, or experience 
sexual desire or impulse. This is God's built-in homing instinct pointing you toward the transcendent, pointing you toward the divine, and God urging you to go there well beyond sexual intercourse. So sorry to keep quoting people, but I feel like folks who are actually living in all of this do actually carry more emotional, experiential authority. Sam Albury says, this is liberating. It means my sexual feelings don't need to be met for their purpose to be fulfilled. When I feel that deep sense of longing, that feeling of sexual restlessness and frustration, I am to think of that ultimate restlessness that comes when we live apart from our creator, a restlessness that has its answer in the one who promised deep and abiding rest for all who come to him. Sexual sin feels like the answer to that restlessness, but like all of sin's pleasure, it is only temporary. It is only fleeting. Celibacy is not a waste of our sexuality. It is a wonderful way of fulfilling it. You hear that? Celibacy isn't a waste of our sexuality. It is a wonderful way of fulfilling it. It's allowing our sexual feelings to point us to the reality of the gospel. We will never ultimately make sense of what our sexuality is unless we know what it is for, to point us towards God's love for us in Christ. Every feeling, impulse, feeling of loss, despair, restlessness, and frustration is meant to urge you towards Christ. It is why God has created you as a sexual being in the first place, for married people or single people alike. Now, though, that's all fine and good, some of you might be thinking. But for most folks in the room, there's still a possibility of sexual expression through marriage. But for me, you might be thinking, perhaps for a handful of us in the room, for a couple of handfuls of us in the room, you might be thinking, I'm not even attracted to the opposite sex. The whole union through difference thing seems unusually cruel to be forced on me when I have never even been attracted to the, same, to the opposite sex. This seems like a bitter pill. So let's think about same-sex sexuality. The Bible reserves sexual expression and intimacy for one man and one woman within the permanent covenantal bond of marriage. Full stop. There is a very loud minority that will argue otherwise. We might call this a side A or progressive or revisionist position on sexuality or same-sex sexuality. But let me just say it this bluntly. It's not biblically plausible. Uh, primarily for three reasons. Uh, one is history. It's the 2,000-year-old stance of the Christian church and of many thousands of years before that of the Jewish understanding of the scriptures that marriage is for one man and one woman. So we ought to be very careful and skeptical of so-called new or enlightened readings and understandings of the Bible. Okay, you might say, but the church has been wrong about other things in history, which is why a second thing is needed. Not only history, but the worldwide witness of the church. American Southerners badly misinterpreted the Bible, using the Bible to endorse slavery. And Christians in the rest of the world told them so. Christians, not only uh, abolitionists from the North, but Europeans like Charles Spurgeon in England and Herman Bovink in Holland, uh, who loudly and ongoingly condemned this bad, bad misinterpretation and use and application of the Bible. 
So while you will find revisionists in other parts of the world, the traditional understanding of marriage is the overwhelming witness of the worldwide church, except for very small slivers within Europe and within Canada and the United States. And many Christians in the Southern Hemisphere are pushing back against what they would call theological or cultural imperialism. And lastly, though, okay, so maybe you, maybe you buy history and the worldwide witness of the church, but it could be true that the worldwide church is just made up of a bunch of yokels. An uneducated church who just doesn't understand history or theology or ancient languages. So a third thing is needed, and that's of scholarship. There are some people out there who have PhDs in theology and of ancient Hebrew and Greek that do take the affirming position. But again, the sliver is just unbelievably small. In academic circles, not just in like conservative theological seminaries, but amongst secular academics, it is just not plausible to argue that Paul or Jesus or the other biblical writers are affirming of same-sex sexual intimacies and relationships that are worth blessing and solemnizing. Lewis Crompton, a gay man, a pioneer in queer studies and in classics, says this about revisionist readings that argue that Paul and others would be totally okay with committed and monogamous same-sex relationships. He says this, Such a reading, again, this man is totally not a Christian, but he says, Such a reading, however well, well-intentioned, seems strained and unhistorical. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstances. So you are more than welcome to reject the authority of the Scriptures. But it is deceived or a dishonest position to use the Bible to affirm same-sex sexuality. And yet, you may have feared you just stumbled into a hellfire and brimstone 1950s church that has condemned all people who struggle with same-sex attraction straight to hell. And that is not at all the case. None of this is to say that for those of you for whom this is a very real daily reality, that you are not welcome here, that, you, that God does not love you, that Jesus is not sufficient. Hopefully everything that we've already thought through has been a helpful start, just a start, but a helpful start in thinking through what following Christ in self-denial and in deeper contentment in him might look like. That neither sexual expression a romantic intimacy is sufficient to bring a fully realized and actualized human life. But nor am I suggesting that what discipleship looks like in your life is for your same-sex desires to now become straight desires. Human beings are unbelievably complex, and our desires are even more complex. So while it may be true for some, For most, there is just no way to put a finger on or identify a point in history for why we have the desires that we have. Why we do this with, like, uh, same-sex desire and we don't do this with any other kind of sinful or unhealthy desire in our life is beyond me. But we try to with same-sex desire. And so, a so-called conversion therapy, counseling someone into heterosexuality, is more often than not and nearly always fruitless harmful and dumb. So what? Well, again, this needs another three hours and another three days and three weeks, but Ed Shaw tells of a time when he was on a panel, a panel talk at a large Christian conference, and a parent asked him this. 
this mom stands up and she says, how can I stop my child from becoming same-sex attracted? He said these kinds of questions come from good motives. Parents want godliness for their children, but questions like these cut because they're thinly veiled paraphrases to Ed Shaw of how can I prevent my child from becoming like you? But the gospel of Jesus has come to transform all of us. Not every one of us. Yes, that too, but all of us, comprehensively all of us. Jesus, for his glory and for our joy, doesn't want us to just be nicer, doesn't want us to just live sexually ethical lives. He wants all of us, including our sexual ethics, but all of us. Ed Shaw reflects on how self-righteous he used to be. His judgmentalism, his condescension was toxically ruining all of his friendships and his relationships. And he says this, Nothing has given me more childlike dependence on God than my same-sex attraction. And after all, that's what, about, what, what being a Christian is about, according to Jesus. I so often don't know how I'm going to stay sexually pure. I'm so acutely aware of the weaknesses that could lead me into scandalous sin tomorrow that I am forced to depend on God in prayer. It is my same-sex attraction that has again and again made me recognize the fiction that I can live an independent life without God's help. Same-sex attraction and godliness do mix. Do you understand what he's saying? Same-sex attraction then has produced in him a greater godliness that would not have come otherwise. My same-sex attraction has directly led to godliness. They can exist together. I would be less godly in so many other areas of my life without it. There's just so much more to say here. I have lots of good book and blog and podcast recommendations and many hours to sit with you over coffee. Uh, Just a few. Uh, I'm not going to go through all these, but Sam Albright's book, Is God Anti-Gay? Super quick and really helpful. Um, What does the Bible really teach about homosexuality? This is just trying to uh, get into, uh, this is from Kevin DeYoung, just what does the Bible teach? Uh, Is it possible to uh, affirm a affirming position on sexuality? Uh, Gay Girl, Good God, a personal biography or autobiography from Jackie Hill Perry, wonderful. And then just a bunch of others on marriage, same-sex attraction, all of these things. Uh, Feel free to just come up and take any of these. Maybe just tell me if you do. Uh, But also, uh, do you guys know about Hoopla? Hoopla is an app. If you have any public library card, then you can get on Hoopla and get any, uh, not any, many books, audible books for free. Uh, And Clint tells me that Alberry's uh, Seven Myths of Singleness is on Hoopla. So if you should have a library card, you can listen to the whole book for free on Hoopla. So all that to say, there's a lot more needed to be said, said about that. But I want to wrap up this session with this. Whether single or married, whether sexually content or sexually frustrated, whether attracted to the opposite sex, attracted to the same sex, attracted to both sexes, attracted to neither, That in the feelings of longing, in the collapsed moments on the kitchen floor, in the heat of temptation, in the aftermath of guilt or regret, God's grace is not hypothetical but real. It is not some theological truth to be understood, but it is a theological reality to be experienced. 
Kathy Keller says, God does not play that game. He does not inject hypothetical grace into your hypothetical nightmare situation so that you would know what it actually feels like if you ever did end up in that situation. What we're imagining in hypothetical situations is actually life in a situation without God's presence. God's presence does not dwell in hypothetical scenarios. He only gives grace for our actual situation. Or as C.S. Lewis makes a similar point when he says, remember one is given the strength to bear what happens, but not the 101 different things that might happen. You hear that? Remember one is given the strength to actually bear what happens. God's grace is sufficient for you today to follow him, to obey him, to desire him, to be transformed by him, to find joy in him. God offers real and actual grace to you today in whatever circumstances you find yourself in, in an initial or saving way. Perhaps some of us in this room might need to come to Christ for the very first time for forgiveness, for union with him, for transformation, or in an ongoing and transformative and preserving way. God's grace is sufficient, actual, and real for all of us, no matter where we find ourselves. Okay, please come and talk to me over coffee or now or whenever. Uh, We just couldn't get to all that we needed to get to in like 45 minutes, okay? Uh, So let's keep having these conversations over the course of our lives together. Uh, But let's take 10 more minutes. Let's get back here, or 11 minutes. Let's get back here at 11.05, 11.05, and we'll... Uh, hear from one more of you, and then we'll spend our last session together thinking about the family of God. All right, see you in 11 minutes.